After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Baseball America podcast. Baseball America, bringing you baseball news you can't get anywhere else for more than 35 years. Now it's time to talk baseball. Hi, I'm Will Carroll. Thanks for joining us on this special edition of the Moda Show for Baseball America. A couple weeks ago, I got the chance to talk to one of the top sports scientists, sports performance consultants around. His name's Eric Cressy, and that's a name you probably already know. Eric has worked with some of the biggest names, and his Cressy performance, both uh, in Massachusetts, outside Boston, and down in Florida, uh, are putting out some amazing work, working with some amazing pitchers uh, and players, and doing some really interesting things. I had the chance to sit down with him and had a wide-ranging conversation. I really hope you enjoy it, and I really hope you learn something from it. This is Eric Cressy. Even with all that intro, Eric, and, and you know, I'm leaving a lot out, I do have to say, you're only the second person I've ever interviewed in my life who has their own shoe. The other one was Michael Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. New Balance did a lot more of the legwork on that than I did. I'm not sure I was I was that deserving, but it was a cool honor. It, 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 well, I was just mad I didn't get a pair. Uh, they, they sold out so quick, and I was like, I have got to get a pair of these shoes. And then, boom, they're sold out. I felt terrible about it, too. We actually had a ton of our pro guys wanted them, and it's funny. It was such a limited edition run. They, I, they probably made like a dozen size 14s, and apparently that's a massively popular shoe size in the pro baseball crowd. So I've got a bunch of minor league players that are bummed out that they haven't gotten one. So hopefully we'll do a 2018 model as well. Oh, that would be awesome. Okay, Eric, let's, let's talk about what you do and where you see this moving because – you know, obviously, you're one of the, the top sports performance coaches. You work with a billion baseball players. You've worked with, with Olympic sports, other people. We know more than we've ever known. We're better than we ever have. The athletes are through the roof, and yet we're still seeing the same, if not more, injuries and more serious ones. What are we doing wrong? Yeah, it's it's a challenging one. Like, uh, I think you hit the nail on the head where literally injuries are outpacing sports medicine innovation. Like, we're we're getting to the point now where guys they have thoracic outlet surgeries because their scalenes are getting so big in right. part, you know, that to keep up with like the the crazy velocities they're encountering. We're seeing, you know, the the you know the UCL reconstructions with internal brace because kids are injuring UCLs at at lower and lower ages. Um, we also see obviously like more lat strains than ever before where you look at, you know, Dr. Romeo in Chicago is like the, has become a specialist in this realm after he kind of invented a surgery for Jake Peavy a few years ago mm-hmm. and now they're becoming commonplace. So it's, it's very, very challenging. And um, I think Dr. Andrews really hit the nail on the head is this is, this is coming down to 
the fact that, um, you know, basically we're pushing the envelope of, of, you know, pure physics at younger ages. More and more guys are throwing hard. I think it was like 10 guys in the All-American game the other night hit 96 among high school yeah. kids in a single game. Like that's, it just didn't happen, you know, 10 years ago. So I think we're, we're paying the prices and, you know, to some degree strength and conditioning and the advances in technology for, you know, evaluating, um, you know, pitching videos and things like that are, are pushing a lot of these things. So what strength and conditioning kind of gives, it also can take away um, because we are, you know, driving the cars a lot faster and the likelihood of crashing is substantially higher. Um, here, here's an interesting thing that you might be intrigued by, Will, is we actually, last year we're talking about area code games, which is the, mm-hmm. the big event that uh, New Balance and Student Sports put on out in Long Beach every year. It's heavily scouted, you know, has all the best players for the most part. All um, of the radar guns. You know, yeah, it's it's 230 of the best players on the, in the country in the high school ranks. So you see, I mean, Mike Trout went, Bryce Harper went, like you're, there are big names playing at this event every single year. And um, what was interesting for me is last year I actually asked we had probably like 42 pro guys that came through our facility that day. I mean, we're talking like big time guys. Like we had, you know, Max Scherzer in. We had like you know guys that had substantial big league time. No, uh, sorry, like um, like Logan Morrison. Mm-hmm. And I asked these guys like, how many of you guys went to area codes? <laughs> like Steve Ciszek was like the funniest response. He's like, I wasn't even good enough to get invited to the tryout. <laughs> like literally out of 40 plus pro guys that were in the facility that day, we had one that played at area codes. It was Sam Fult. So he played on the Northeast team. Yeah. And he's a position player. Like, and a fringy guy at, like, that. The track record of this, like for whatever reason, our really, really good prospects aren't getting to the big leagues as quickly as we think or safely as we think. Um, we're seeing a lot more of those like late bloomers, you know, the, like Steve Ciszek went and grew six inches his freshman year of college, and, you know, he showed up, you know, as he was an 82-mile-an-hour senior in high school, and then he, you know, leaves three years later throwing 94. There are a lot of those late bloomers, and, you know, I think it's unfortunate, but we're seeing a lot of these kids that are throwing 95 to 97 in high school that, that are petering out, um, you know, whether it's in college or in pro ball. Um, to some degree, like, that little bit of, like, a slow cook strategy does kind of work. Unfortunately, that's not what gets you recruited, so it's, it's really like a, a challenging dynamic of, you know, I, I won't pull my hamstrings if I don't run fast, but if I don't run fast, then I won't get, you know, any, I won't win awards, I won't win races, so... I think we're really stuck in a tough dynamic developmentally in the industry of knowing just how much to push, how much to hold back. And, and I think that's where a lot of the, you know, the, the stats and the numbers that um, you know, Dr. Andrews put out during your recent podcast were, were valuable. It's like you can develop guys and still get you know, three months off from throwing each year. You can, you can basically go out there and still you know, have a lot of success and, and become a better pitcher without throwing over 100 innings in a year. We, we've done this over and over and over again with guys, but the problem is that there are so many social factors in place that make it really, really hard to restrict guys in that regard. I agree, and I think that's where it, it comes down to. And again, I'll, I'll plug a little bit here because you know I am biased. I think this is going to come down to recovery, and you can't recover if you're not measuring your effort. So if you're going to throw yep. nine months out of the year, know where you're yep. at in terms of your workload, and then that brings you back to a point where you can say, okay, I can recover. I need more rest here. I'm going to have to take a week off or, you know, yep. you, Eric, and the rest of the, the people out there who are actually coaching yeah. these athletes say, no, you need a week. You need a month. Let's take some, let's work on your legs. Let's work on your recovery skills. Let's, there's a million things we can do, but you know, for a lot of people out there uh, who aren't in your, you know, uber successful position, uh, they need those 12 year olds throwing all year round because it's money for their facility. And, and yep. that worries me in itself. Yeah, and, and you know, I think there's 
the thing to remember is, you know, when you're working with athletes, whether baseball, football, whatever sport you're actually in, you're really looking for windows of adaptation. You know, and your window of adaptation for a 12-year-old very rarely is going to be making sure he throws 90 innings instead of 70 innings. Those 20 innings developmentally are actually shockingly insignificant. Mm-hmm. What's more significant for that 12-year-old is going to be putting 30 pounds of meat on his butt, his hamstrings, his upper back. It's going to be improving his cuff strength by 300% <clears throat> with a four-week, you know, rotator cuff strengthening program like they're actually really easy ways to get adaptation that so many people really miss so I, I think that's the challenge is that you know inherently we're drawn to doing what we're good at baseball coaches are good at you know teaching guys baseball um but when it comes to you know maybe taking an athlete and helping him develop in, in different ways they aren't necessarily as open-minded or likely to seek out um those maybe uh those less convenient ways to develop athletes that leads me to my next question. Uh, you know, when you're dealing, you deal with a lot of pro athletes, but you also deal with high school, college on down. Uh, we always hear about, you know, uh, major league pro, uh, pitching coaches and pitching coordinators don't like this or don't like that. They, they'll take somebody out of a long toss program or they don't believe in weighted balls or you know, bands or something like that. How much pushback do you get not only from pro organizations with your program, but also, you know, the high school coach that thinks he knows better. How do you deal with that? Because it's the athlete that's stuck in the middle. Yeah, I, you know, I think on our end, um, the pushback actually surprisingly isn't bad. Uh, maybe not surprising, actually, because I think one of the things that we really try to do is be good communicators and try to cultivate relationships and, you know, things like that. So, like, case in point, like the Washington National Spring Training Complex is, is right near our facility in Florida. And, you know, Matt Iden's their strength coach. He's outstanding at what he does. I know their whole training staff. So, like, those guys come in. We we do in-services together. Like, we, we powwow. We talk shop. Like, I'm doing a talk down in Washington, D.C. in September. They have two members of their staff coming to it. So, you know, I, I really have worked hard to nurture those relationships because at the end of the day, it's, it's important for me to realize that even if I do everything right, I'm still going to have those pro baseball players at the most four to six months per year. Um, and, and there's another, you know, half to, you know, you know, six to eight months of the year that I'm not going to have them. So I want to make sure, A, that I've educated them to take care of themselves and understand how their body works well and, um, you know, to, to be advocates, you know, in situations where they need to. But I also want to make sure that we do a good job of doing some outreach so that there's clear communication with the organization of here's what we've done, here's what's worked well, here's what hasn't worked well. I think this is going to help your job. So, like, um, you know, I, I talked with Joe, the strength coach for the, the Indians, about Corey Kluber, you know, pretty regularly, mm-hmm. like, He's been with me since like 2010, so you know I, Joe's super open-minded. And I, you know, I really believe that um, you know we're we're really lucky. I think being in the private sector, there, it puts a little bit of a velvet rope around your business, where we tend to get high motivation, high skill athletes, right? So usually when you get a high motivation, high skill athlete, they're also going to be pretty educated guys. So those are the athletes that that want to have an active role in the in planning the training process. They want to have discussions with their coaches. They don't want to be told what to do. Um, and I, I think those are things that we really try to, you know, work towards is, you know, how do we create those open lines of dialogue? And you look at, like, these organizations that are – you look at the Indians. You look at, um, you know, like where Derek Falvey is going to be taking the Twins. You look at what the Dodgers are doing. These are really open-minded organizations that have, like, great conversations. Like the Astros, a lot of, a lot of good things happening there um, as well. Just they, There's outreach. There's communication across levels. They're looking to other industries – you know, like Jeff Albert, the minor league hitting coach or hitting coordinator for the Astros, he's looking at TPI and what we're seeing in golfers. Um, I just think we can learn from so many different people. And as I look across baseball, the ones who are 
who are really starting to thrive and separate themselves from the pack. They're the ones that are doing the outreach. They're the ones that are trying to find better, better ways to get through to athletes, communicate correctly, both in and outside the game. And I, I think that's, you know, it, it comes down to, like, people skills and relationships. Those are some of the things that drive a lot of these sports medicine issues that we see. Great answer. I'm going to have to go back and listen to that just to unpack all that. That was some great stuff, Eric. Um, you mentioned there about you know rotator cuffs, posterior chain. Uh, let me simplify that because posterior chain doesn't mean a lot to some people. You were talking about hamstrings, but you know, the, the kind of muscles that are really going to help you pitch, but not what Tom House recently called in regards to Noah Syndergaard, dumb muscle. Um, yeah. When you're looking at a, at a pitcher who's you know not a pro, somebody who's getting ready, what are you assessing? What are you using? And what do you usually see the deficits in that, that somebody could make you know rapid gains that would really be helpful? Yeah. You know, and I, I I think one of the things we have to be really careful, in, and I know Tommy's a good friend. I think we have to be really careful about commenting on situations where we don't have direct knowledge, um, because athletes will trick us. You know, and, and I, I see that. So I'll give you an example. Um, if you actually look on the research on posture and its ability to predict injuries, it's actually shockingly, like, bad. Like, we really don't have as good an information um, in the research that actually shows, like, hey, being in this horrible position, you know, having this shoulder that's anteriorly tilted, you know, twice as much as it should be, or this right shoulder that's two inches lower than the left, or having this crazy anterior pelvic tilt or big hunchback, like, it actually doesn't predict uh, injury nearly as well as we'd expect, certainly not consistently right. across all the research. And the reason for that is that injuries are incredibly multifactorial. There are a lot of things that go into predicting stuff. So you can have guys that have horrible control of their shoulder blades, you know, terrible upper back mobility, you know, no core control, but for whatever reason they have like just a crazy strong rotator cuff and they never wind up with shoulder issues, right? And you have other guys that, that pass every test with flying colors and, you know, sure enough, they wind up with shoulder issues and you're left scratching your head. So, you know, posture is really, really challenging in that way. So I think sometimes when we when we look at somebody from afar, we, we try to say, well, this guy had this issue because of this. You know, kind of like the classic guy on the Internet who wants to criticize mechanics and say, that's definitely why he got hurt. I'm like, <laughs> how do you know he didn't get hurt yeah. because he, you know, slipped and fell in the shower and hurt his shoulder and you just don't know about it. Um, so I think those are things that I'm very, very cognizant of. It's why you'll you'll never see me, like, commenting in the media and saying such and such had this issue because of this. It's, it's very easy to cherry pick in a True. sport where – 57% of pitchers have some kind of shoulder injury over the course of a season. Like everybody's hurt at some point in their career. So it's not really that hard to extrapolate out that it's going to be an issue. So I think we, we really need to make sure we, we separate that out. That said, we, we evaluate, right? Cause if you're not assessing, you're, you're guessing to, you know, to, uh, to paraphrase what Mike Reinald talks about sometimes as well. You know, and I think what we look at is, you know, we look for, for big time outliers. We look for red flags, right? So, you know, somebody walks in and they've got, you know, limited shoulder flexion on their throwing side where they, you know, they're, you know, minus 40 degrees and on the other side they're perfect. Like, that's a big risk factor. That's someone that's going to be, you know, a lat strain or, you know, a chronic anterior shoulder discomfort. There's going to be something there most likely that, that's not a leap of faith, right? And just like, you know, you throw a modus sleeve on somebody, right, and you have a guy that, you know, consistently reads really, really high in terms of valgus stress, um, you know, where he, he reads, you know, higher on certain pitches, things along those lines. That gives you some, some incredibly insightful data to work with to, to individually manage stuff. The, the guys who are, that are probably harder to manage are the guys that are in the middle, right, that don't look horrible, don't look great. There's not that one thing that jumps off the table as being, like, really, really pronounced. And that's where you have to dig a little bit deeper and see, 
is there a synergistic relationship between all these factors where, all right, you know, his, his cuff strength doesn't test very well, his hip internal rotation is not good, um, you know, he tends to overcook his slider a little bit, he's a little bit across himself, and you, it, it, this is why it's fun. It's like, a, it's like putting together a puzzle every time you see somebody. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you a great example. We had a, a college pitcher who came in and saw us um, about three months ago. He was a guy um, who was a big-time prospect, uh, didn't sign out of high school, went to a pretty big Division I university, had a pretty significant elbow issue, um, got a really, like, kind of a funky delivery, really across himself. Um, but you know what? The, the amazing thing about it is he's had this elbow history. He also had a lat strain, and he had setbacks coming back from the lat strain as well. And you have to look at this as, like, the big picture. And he was just getting off the mound when he came back, so I got a chance to throw him a pen. And he was a guy who was really, really acro- across himself, but, oh, my gosh, he could always get to the glove side. Like, most of those guys struggle to throw a glove side fastball, and he did it consistently over and over and over again. So the issue is, do you start tinkering with mechanics when basically that kid who's had this pretty extensive injury history and a lot of success every time he's played – can execute probably the hardest pitch for, for that guy to throw from that position. And, and my feeling is you don't touch that because he's had success because I can look and I can say this kid had very limited shoulder flexion. He would had no soft tissue work as part of his treatments. His cuff didn't test very well. His core control wasn't very good. Um, his hip mobility wasn't probably right where it needed to be. And honestly, he could probably stand to gain about 20 or 25 pounds to shift some of that stress around. He had a really flat upper back, didn't, didn't really know how to reverse that curve to kind of create a good ball release position. So for me, I don't touch the mechanical side of things with him because I think that the quickest path to preventing future medical issues is to work on the physical preparation side of things. Conversely, if you take that kid and he walks in and he has that same delivery, he's never gotten anybody out, he's always been hurt, and he can't execute pitches the way that he needs to, then you have to probably look at it a lot differently. But here's the issue, and this is something, I mean, I remember, you know, we've, we've gone back and forth in this over the years, like pro ball always finds a way to screw it up. <laughs> we've had athletes, no joke, who have been drafted and taken to a team, and before they have thrown a pitch, their mechanics have been overhauled. Yeah. Like, that's a huge deal. Not just tinkered with, like not just go to from a four seam to a two seam. They've been overhauled. Taking a three-quarter guy and making him up over the top, making him less across himself. And mechanics, I, I actually was texting with Andy McKay from the Mariners today about it. Mechanics are the single most debated point in the industry. It's something, you know, we thought Mark Pryor's mechanics were, were perfect. Obviously, that wasn't the case. There were you know, countless examples of these over the years. We don't know what good mechanics are because good mechanics are what blends deception with velocity, uh, with command, um, with long-term success and durability. So it's very multifactorial. Um, you tinker with mechanics first when you have all these other factors that can go into it, whether it's you know, physical stuff, whether it's systemic, like looking at what medications they take, um, whether their vitamin D status is good. There's so many different things you have to look at. Why do we go to mechanics first? Why do we want to overhaul that? When Would you ever teach anybody to throw like Chris Sale? Absolutely not, right? It's, it's, it's not a delivery it's, it's, it's a, that you would ever want yeah. a 13-year-old to start with. Maybe if they had that body type. Crap, he makes it work. He throws 100, yeah. has an unreal slider. You know, he managed to get his front leg stiff. He's got a good glove side that makes it work. And you know what? So what if his direction maybe isn't ideal? Um, you would never teach anybody to throw like Steve Ciszek. There's, you know, uh, Pat Nash, like all these different guys that throw <laughs> uniquely, but it works at the big league level. So I, 
I always think we have to look to like physical preparation first before we start overhauling what's made guys successful. I, I think you're exactly right there. One of the things we don't take into account is first, we don't know what the heck the mechanics are actually doing. What are the forces? Because 99% of the time, they're not measuring those before and after. They're not able to see that, what their changes are doing. Are those positive or negative? And then second of all, uh, mechanics really, at the end of the day, are adaptations to activity. So if you're changing yeah. one thing, you're changing what this kid has been doing for 10, 12 years. Yeah. His body is adapted to that. Yep. And the other thing is, look look at how it's done. Like, And I, I don't mean to to belittle anybody that works in professional baseball. But, like, if we just look at the averages, look at who the majority of our pitching coaches are in pro ball. They're, they're former players, right? So, I mean, how many of these guys have gone to, like, specific educational courses or had extensive research in how motor learning works? Probably, mm -hmm. I mean, you could count them on one hand for the most part. Do they understand the difference between internal and focus cues, uh, excuse me, internal and external focus cues? If, if they don't understand that – you can really quickly dome somebody up. Um, and you yeah. can dome somebody up really fast. We have a, a minor league guy right now who's, who's going through some tough stuff because they changed it. They wanted to start throwing a slider. They changed his, his pattern from the windup, and they stopped him from going over his head. They made all three of those changes the day before the start and encouraged him to go out and do it <laughs> like the next day. That's, that's Not exactly the, setting the, him up for success. Yeah, if you chase two, ha two rabbits, both get away. Um, you, you have to really, I think, resist the urge to overhaul with, with higher-level deliveries like that. You make a subtle adjustment, right? Corey Kluber, they, they did very, very little, I think, differently with Corey's delivery as I look back on some stuff. You know, the big change for Corey was going from predominantly four seams to predominantly two seams with his fastball. And there were definitely some mechanical changes that happened over the course of time and, you know, things like that. But there was never, it was never an overhaul that was forced down his throat. Um, guys don't do well with that at the professional level, especially if they've had some success. I mean, Corey still struck a lot of guys out in the minor leagues. Um, you know, he just, he just got squared up a little bit more and, and it made him more consistent. So um, I think, I think you just have to be really careful about tinkering with, with mechanics. Um, and, and unfortunately, I think that's become a trend that's become a little bit too common in pro ball. Absolutely. Now, obviously, you're at the cutting edge. What sort of things are you using right now? How do you integrate technology in the approach? Because it's obviously accelerating. You know, it's hard to imagine what life was like before an iPhone. And now we've got all these tools, whether it's a modus throw, whether it's you know, biomechanics uh, in the lab, whether it's you know, th things that are tracking uh, recovery and sleep and all these other things. What are you using and what do you find most useful? Absolutely. You know, so I, I think the, the big thing for me is like technology is only useful if it drives decision making, right? If it, if it creates something in place that you know you can, you can directly modify your programs um, to work from. So, you know, there, there's easy stuff. There's things like Normatech, which we know guys tend to bounce back between sessions when they use it. Um, you know, manual therapy, like there are different approaches to, to doing that. So I don't even call that necessarily technology. Those are easy things, Mark Pro. Um, so those are things that we have at our guys' fingertips for them to use. I think some of the stuff that, you know, if, if I looked at like three different things that were probably most impactful for us of late, um, obviously the, the modus side of things, which you, you guys obviously know way, way better than I, I think that's, you know, the, the, above all else, I think it's tremendously useful in terms of finding those outliers. Um, you know, and I look at it in kind of two different ways. I look like, do we have a ton of variability in a guy? Like if he comes mm -hmm. in and he makes, you know, he throws a 40-pitch pen and his numbers are literally all over the place, like, 
and you'll see that sometimes in some of those like younger guys that don't repeat their deliveries well and all right. that. Like that's a guy who might need more true specialization. Like he might need a greater level of focus on attention to detail to repeat his mechanics consistently. And and that's where someone you know they've got to understand how to correct um, themselves when they're getting into bad habits. That's also a guy that I probably would be cognizant of, like not throwing into a lot of fatigue. Like that's a kid who probably is going to be more successful you know, making three two-innings stints a week out of the bullpen than he is throwing six innings once a week. He just needs repetition without fatigue. That's how, how motor learning takes place. So you, you get those numbers that can make a big difference. The other one is obviously if you get a kid who's got crazy high stress numbers, you've got to figure out what is it that's doing it. Is it, is it one specific pitch that's causing this problem? Is he throwing it incorrectly? Um, you know, is it a guy who, you know, for whatever reason is doing something different with lower half that's putting him in bad positions? Um, you know, what is the reason that he's kind of getting there? So our, our pitching quarter obviously can do a lot in that regard. So so Modus is, is definitely a game changer. Um, the second one we've we started using and we're a little bit newer to it is Rapsodo. Um, Great stuff. I, I like Rapsodo, honestly, because I think the velocity readings for us are a little bit more consistent indoors. Radar gun readings have always been kind of weird, um, you know, like working in an indoor facility up here in Massachusetts, so we struggle with that. And I like the fact that you can kind of set it up, do your thing, It'll give you your radar gun readings um, and give you your spin rates and everything and you know, effectively kind of call strikes at the facility as well. So mm-hmm. um, I, I like the fact that it'll track quite a bit for you. Um, you know, candidly, I don't use necessarily either of those uh, a ton in terms of like almost like quantifying like yearly load or anything just because, it, you know, it's so heavily dependent on the kid making sure he always wears the sleeve when he pitches or practices or anything like that. But I, I think in an acute scenario, it's probably more powerful for me. Um, another one that's actually, you know, kind of like a, that has been probably a, a, a huge game changer for us has been fatigue science. Um, right. I'm not sure how familiar we are with that, but um, fatigue yeah, science based on like an algorithm that was developed in the military to make sure that fighter pilots were, weren't too sleep deprived to go into battle. Um, and, you know, the ready bands that they've made are, are basically, it's kind of like a, um, you know, imagine like a Fitbit that you wear on your wrist, but it, all it does is sleep tracking. It doesn't do time, steps, anything like that. It's just really, really good for sleep. So one of the things that we've been doing is, is we have five ready bands in the office that automatically sync to an iPad every time somebody walks in the facility. And basically what happens is they, you know, they give us insights into what athletes are doing. So um, you can look at everything from like what time they go to bed to what time they actually fall asleep. So is this the kid that's laying in bed for two hours before he falls asleep? Mm -hmm. You can look at like wake episodes, how many times they wake up in the middle of the night, how long they wake up for, what time they wake up. Um, So I'll I'll give you an example. We had a a college development program this summer um, and we had some guys in the mix that really needed to gain weight that, you know, were kind of like playing the, you know, they're three weeks in and their body weight hasn't changed and they're playing the, I can't gain weight card. And we we actually (laughs) looked at their schedule and, so most of these guys were doing double sessions. So they would meet at the field at 10 in the morning, usually about an hour and a half of, you know, warm-up slash throwing stuff. They'd have a break, and then they'd, they'd lift at 2 o'clock after lunch, and that would be their day. So we had guys that were going to bed at, like, 1 a.m., sleeping till like, 9.15, rolling out of bed and going directly to the field. So if you look at that from a pure nutritional standpoint, we could, we could actually chart what they were doing with their sleep. So first off, you roll out about at 9.15 and you're, you have to be at the field for 10 knowing that you've got to be active, you're not eating a lot for breakfast. So you had a couple of guys that were undershooting breakfast, eating, you know, a couple hundred calories. After the throwing session were done, they were, they were under-eating lunch knowing that they didn't want to be too full before they lifted later in the afternoon. So you had that side of things. And then what they were doing, the, the biggest thing we realized was they would have dinner at 7 o'clock and then they'd stay up till 1 a.m. So they would basically fast from 7 to 1 
So you basically have your, your six-hour fast right there, and then they would sleep eight hours until 9 a.m. Um, so you're, you're talking about like a 15-hour fast. Um, and on top of that, you know, they'd eat really, really light at breakfast. So, you know, effectively from 7 p.m. until, you know, probably about 3 o'clock, then 3.30 or 4 the next day, they were remarkably underfed. So they were almost doing like intermittent fasting as they tried yeah. to gain weight. So we're like, listen, first off, you should go to bed earlier. And if you're not going to go to bed earlier, you need to eat like a second and maybe even a third dinner. And it was like a game changer for these guys. Like it, yeah. it actually made a pretty remarkable difference. Um, we've seen other examples of just guys like um, we, had, we had a kid who was uh, really, he was a high school guy, really a good athlete, playing Division One baseball now. He, he was finishing his senior year. And he was like clockwork with his sleep, like every bed in bed, every night in bed at 1020, up at like 630 to go to school. So he'd get his, you know, basically his eight plus hours every single night. And then what happened was they graduated. So his last day of school was the end of May, and they were still playing in the state playoffs. So he graduated high school, but was still in the mix. And what happened was he got out of school, so he started going to bed later, hanging out with buddies. So he'd be in bed at 12 or 1, but he kept waking up at like 6 a.m. Um, so you have these guys that go from sleeping 8 hours and 15 minutes a night to sleeping 5 and a half to 6, and you could actually see it in like his readiness scores. And it was kind of interesting because it was actually happening during the state playoffs, and he felt fine, but he went like over 16 over four days and then kind of like realized that he, he righted the ship and, and got back on and wound up closing in the state championship game. So it was – a pretty interesting like dynamic to see what happens where some of these athletes that you know if, if they change their time to bed the time to wake doesn't necessarily change they, they can't make it up as easily um, yeah so sleep tracking has been like a game changer for us and it's been clutch because we can rotate it around actually i've sent a couple out to our pro guys that i monitor in season and we're kind of like seeing some interesting patterns particularly as they go across time zones so again these are things that you know, if we're, we're talking about this data revolution, it's, it's only useful if it drives decision making, right? Right. TrackMan's awesome if it, if we get extension numbers and we know, hey, this guy's extension is down, we need to change his pregame warm ups to make sure that you know he's able to get out to that good position. So those are that's what I always try to do as we we take on new technologies is make sure that it's something that's actually going to help us change the way that we we train people and get better results. Have you looked, uh, in terms of nutrition, have you looked at continuous glucose monitoring? I know, I know your buddy Tim Ferriss loves that. No, we haven't. Um, aside from Sam Fold, who's a type 1 diabetic, and Sam's always super on top of his stuff. Um, not so much. I think, you know, I think sometimes we have to be really, really cognizant of getting, not getting too high level. You know, when we're dealing with, with guys in many occasions, in many occasions that are, um, you know, there's a great Tim Grover quote. You know, Tim was uh, uh, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Dwayne Ray. Right. His book talks about stop waiting around for someone to teach you something you already know. And my experience yeah. has been that most athletes, um, you know, are, are in that situation. They're still eating Fruit Loops. They're still not eating <laughs> frequently enough. They're not drinking enough water. So I'm really, really cautious about not overwhelming guys unless they're really doing a good job. Um, and I think in baseball, particularly on the minor league side, there's some really, really bad food choices like – you know, doing glucose monitoring for a minor year that's basically getting yeah. fed, you know, PB&J and dog food every day is <laughs> probably yeah. not in our best. But you will <laughs> yeah. get those nutrition nerds that are really, really into it and want to learn a lot more. So, you know, in those cases, if guys want to get a little bit more bold and do more tracking, I'm all for it. Uh, two more questions. You've already been so gracious with your time. Uh, first, unfortunately, there's not an Eric Ressi performance uh, you know, all around the country. If you're in Massachusetts, if you're in Southern Florida, I highly recommend it. But if, if there, there's somebody in you know, South Dakota 
or, or yeah. Indiana, what would you tell the parent to look for? What would you tell the player to look for? What are the two or three things you need to see when you go to a facility, when you're talking to a coach? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, uh, what would you look for in terms of like finding a qualified coach to work with or, you know, in terms of like, how do you keep your kid healthy? Both. Okay. So, I mean, in terms of keeping somebody healthy, like number one thing I would tell you is like the only thing that we know consistently predicts injury across the board at every level is overuse. Like, so that's something that's validated over and over again. Dr. Andrews did a good job talking about it. Like, you need to find a way to cross-train and find those windows of adaptation in different ways instead of just throwing a baseball all the time. Um, and, and that's a hard thing for parents to do. You know, they have no problem shutting down when a doctor says you have a fracture in your elbow. But if uh, somebody who's not a doctor says if you don't shut down, you will get a fracture in your elbow, it doesn't register the same way. So those are really, really challenging dynamics that we're facing. But um, in terms of, like, seeking out, like, good professionals, I think the hard part about – um, you know, the strength and conditioning field, like the personal training industry, is like it's a very low barrier to entry. Um, I have a, a buddy who, who got his pug certified online in a weekend one time. <laughs> yeah. not, it's not very hard to jump in on this. So, um, you know, I, I think when, when it comes down to it, looking to word of mouth is really, really important. Um, you know, as somebody consistently put out, um, you know, results and, and made their expertise, you know, easy to perceive in a number of different capacities. So I, I think you always have to go to trusted sources. Um, you know, people who are, you know, I guess doing their best to educate the masses as well. So, like, I know for us, um, you know, people wind up training with us for a lot of different reasons, but invariably the majority of them come back down to word of mouth. And, you know, word of mouth doesn't doesn't necessarily lie. Results are results. So I, I think that's the most important thing. But here, here's the other thing I would tell you is if, if you know, we're talking to a, a parent in South Dakota or, you know, a kid in New Mexico or whatever maybe here, here's what I would definitely come back to is you have to remember that no matter, you know, as much as we would love to think everybody's going to play professional baseball and make a crazy living doing so, um, that's not the reality. It's going to be a very small percentages that are going to be the guys getting $100 million deals and you know, living off baseball for the rest of their life. So baseball is going to end at some point, but um, you know, a, a love for exercise is going to sustain regardless. So we really try to foster a community environment, and we take it very seriously that the kids that train in our facility, you know, this is their third place. There's, there's home, there's school, and there's us. We want to make sure that we create an unconditionally positive environment. We don't want, you know, music with F-bombs blaring in the background. We don't want negativity. Um, we want it to be a, a place where people see it as a sanctuary, you know, that, that makes them want to exercise for the rest of their life and be part of something much bigger than themselves. So um, I really would just tell people, like, realize that that's what it's about. It's about creating a good experience for kids um, and, and being unconditionally positive because there's enough negativity out there and all facets of their life, especially in a sport where, you know, if you hit 300, you're still failing, you know, 70% of your time. So um, I would just, uh, I would say to parents, find people that are good role models. And I, I think that goes a long way. I find that the people that are most successful in the world are the ones that are constantly learning, constantly asking questions. What's the last thing you learned that really excited you? The last thing that I learned that really excited me, I think, uh, I'll say this, I, I listened to a Charlie Weingroff DVD um, yesterday. Charlie's a physical therapist in the New York City area, does a lot of work in the basketball world, and Charlie just put out some some outstanding information um, just on basically validating manual therapy. You know, there's still a, a chunk of the industry and even like professional teams that don't believe in the, the benefits of massage and 
you know, very soft tissue approaches when it's been around. I mean, there are cave paintings from four to 5,000 years ago um, that show that people were having benefits from back then, and it, I think that's a, that's a battle I fight pretty regularly, and Charlie actually did a really, really good job of elucidating, like, the mechanisms of action, um, you know, how we can improve our warm-ups, um, you know, how soft tissue work plays an active role in everything from motor learning to, you know, fatigue management, things like that. So I... I, I saw that yesterday. It was gold. I texted him right afterwards and said it was one of the best lectures I'd seen in the last 10 years. So um, that's probably the, the thing that's freshest in my mind right now. Is this is T equal? I forget exactly what it is. Equals re up three. Um, it's a good one. I'm almost done with it myself. And, and, and Charlie's been a, you know, Charlie's not necessarily a, a baseball guy. He played back in the day. But um, I think, you know, to our point earlier about talking about some of the most successful organizations are doing, like, you got to look outside baseball sometimes to be more efficient in baseball. Um, that's something we really try to embrace. That was Eric Cressy. You can check out his work at Cressy Performance uh, online, on Twitter. Uh, certainly can't go wrong listening to Eric. Ton of knowledge, ton of takeaways in that conversation. And I'm excited to share that with you. Please make sure to check out the Moda Show, where we have more of these kinds of conversations, whether it's Mike Reinold, uh, whether it's Dr. Jim Andrews, uh, tons of people. We've got an upcoming conversation with Fergus Conley, who's the director of sports performance uh, at the University of Michigan, uh, worked with some of the greatest coaches, and has a book coming out called Game Changer. Really excited for that one. Hope you'll check out all our work, plus all of our products at Modus. We're really excited to be launching the Modus One, a motion capture shirt that does some objective analysis that's simply not out there. Make sure you check us out uh, at modusglobal.com. Uh, thanks again for listening. Thanks to Eric Cressy, and we'll talk to you soon. I'm Will Carroll. This concludes our program. Want more in-depth baseball coverage? Be a better fan. Visit BaseballAmerica.com to get more comprehensive baseball coverage. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.